Let's pray before we get started. Uh, Father in heaven, we need you uh, this Sunday as much as we uh, as much as we always do. And um, Lord, I pray that we would come uh, with open mouths, uh, Lord, ready for you to feed us, not just teach us something, uh, but to nurture us. And uh, Lord, I pray that your word would uh, do its work in our lives uh, to make us more like you. Uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, today, uh, starting a new series, a uh, new series from a book, First Timothy. Uh, we uh, did another pastoral epistle. This is one of them. We did another one back August, September. Uh, we did it on Titus. Titus is another pastor. And so there's three pastoral epistles in the New Testament. You have First and Second Timothy, and you have Titus. And Paul writes all three of them. And Timothy and Titus are young pastors, and he's instructing them uh, on their work. And uh, so you might think, well, if it's a pastoral epistle, what does it have to do with me? That, this, that, that's just for you, Marsh. Like, you're the one uh, who should be uh, looking at First Timothy. What's this got to do uh, with me? And I, I understand that. I mean, th- th- in some ways, there are parts of this book that may have something to say to me that it wouldn't have to say to, let's say, a data analyst. But I think there are at least three reasons uh, why we should look at First Timothy uh, the first one is that it, this letter was intended to be read by the whole church. Sure, it was to Timothy, uh, but the whole church was to hear it. Now, Paul states the purpose of his book in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, when he says, I hope to come to you soon. And the church he's tr- hoping to come to that Timothy is pastoring is the church in Ephesus. And he says, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. See, Paul's goal at the end of the day wasn't just for Timothy alone, but it was for the church as a whole. So if that's his intention, then for all of us, there's going to be these golden nuggets that will be given to us along the way for us to mine in these pages. The second reason is that all scripture is profitable. Now, the Bible, the scriptures, it's a big book, isn't it? It's a big book with lots of different kinds of literature. There are parts that are barely explored by most of us. Books like Obadiah. Anybody know anything about Obadiah? I couldn't tell you what Obadiah is about. I mean, give me a second and I can figure it out. You can figure it out too. Uh, But I don't know what Obadiah is about right off the cuff. How about Leviticus? Anybody done a Bible study in Leviticus lately? Probably not. Then there's these genres of literature like genealogies that we find throughout the scriptures. You see them in Genesis 5. You see one in Matthew 1. But we learn that despite the book, despite the genre, what 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 tells us is that all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture. And that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what that means is that whether it's a passage that you easily understand as a modern reader, or it's one that offends you, or it's one that confuses you, it shares equal parts inspiration by God and potential profit for you. So although these letters are written to pastors, they're going to do their work on us. And then the third one, so it's that, the, that this letter really was written for the whole church. The second one, 
is that all scripture is profitable. Third reason is that we would have proper expectations for our pastor. And maybe you're visiting or maybe you're watching and this isn't Hope Presbyterian Church, isn't your church home. You have another pastor. Well, for some of us, this is good for us. See, and some of the funniest zingers I've ever heard people give are about their expectations of pastors. A friend of mine in college, Kyle Howard's friend too, we call him Papa Shanks. And uh, Papa Shanks used to always say about pastors, he said that you get paid to pray. And the way he said it made me laugh every single time. He just had a funny way about him. But now I realize the nobility of his statement and how much more I wish it were true of me. There's another funny one. There's an older guy who goes here to Tate's Creek. And every time he saw me or Mark or Will or Robert, the pastors at Tate's Creek, he would always tease us that we only worked one day a week. He said, the only day you guys work every week is Sunday. And we like to respond, well, just because uh, you don't see us, it's actually possible for us to do work that you don't see. Then he would laugh. So it was a good joke. But seriously, when I wake up tomorrow morning, what is it that I should do? Should I walk down the street and serve the poor at Lighthouse tomorrow? Or should I work on my sermon for next Sunday? Should I uh, hop on my bike and ride up to Arlington to meet a carpet guy to give us a quote uh, for the nursery? Or should I walk my neighborhood and pray? There's lots of things that pastors could do. Eugene Peterson, a writer and, and former pastor, he died just about a year ago. He said that pastors are often viewed as a flailing blob of availability. That essentially pastors just do whatever it is people want them to do. And maybe you think pastors should be an entrepreneur. Maybe you think they should be an executive. Maybe you think that they should be a professor. Maybe you think they should be a counselor. And I know that none of you think that a pastor should play all of those roles, but some of you think that a pastor should play one of those roles. And what the pastoral epistles do is that they give all of us, pastor and congregant alike, a beat on what it is that God expects from pastors. And that's good for all of us. I know I'm guilty of trying to fulfill your expectations and that's not good for you and it's not good for me. So I'm praying that God helps us along these next several weeks. And so today, with those reasons in mind of why we should look at 1 Timothy, we're going to start in verse 1. It's tempting. It was real tempting for me on Monday to say, you know what, I'm not going to preach the greeting. Verses 1 and 2, I'm just going to get to the meat of things in verse 3. But I can't do that. There's gold and then their hills, verses 1 and 2. So let's read them together. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. All right, so we're going to look at Paul since he's mentioned first. Then Timothy, then we're going to look at Jesus. All right? So Paul, that's the very first letter right there. Paulos in the Greek. He's a colossal figure in the New Testament. He wrote 13 epistles. The book of Acts is more about Paul than it is about Peter. Over half the book is about Paul's ministry. 
And even if you've not spent a lot of time around the church, you've probably heard about the Apostle Paul. You probably even know a tidbit of trivia or two about the Apostle Paul. But who was he? What kind of state is he in when he writes this letter to Timothy, who's in Ephesus? And just as important, if not more important, what does it say to you and to me in 2021? Well, look what it says about Paul. First, it gives you his name, Paul. And that might not sound like much to you. It's just a name, but Paul wasn't his original name. His original name was Saul. And it would have been just as weird in the first century as it is today for your name to change as a grown adult. Now, some of us, as we get older, we go from a name maybe like Timmy to Tim. Bobby to Bob, Susie to Susan, I don't know. But to change your first name entirely is odd. We don't know many instances of that. But it happened to Paul and it happened because it corresponds to his change in identity. See, he used to be this Jewish zealot. He was climbing this Jewish religious ladder of fame because he took his profession as a zealot more seriously than anyone. He was this fire-breathing persecutor of the Christian church. And he was on this ascent when God changed his course in a dramatic way. And that happens for some of us. Some of us, we come to the faith because we grew up in a Christian household. Some of us, we come to faith gradually as an adult. But other of us come to faith like Paul did. We wake up one day and you just say, I'm going to do what I always do. When Paul was converted, he woke up that day and he said, I'm going to persecute Christians just like I do every day. But when Paul went to bed after his trip to Emmaus, he was a different person. Maybe that's the way you came to faith. Or maybe that's the way you'll come to faith today. In this series of unexpected events, you just happen to be sitting here in the church pew. You just happen to be watching online or listening at some point during the week. Maybe your girlfriend dragged you here. Maybe your friend texted you a link to this sermon for some reason. And here you are, you're engaging with Jesus and that wasn't on your agenda when you woke up this morning. Well, can I tell you something? You might just have a radical shift happen in your life today because Jesus is going to get a hold of you. And if he does, there's precedent for that. And it happened with the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul's most fundamental change was that he became a person of faith in Jesus. But, as you see in his description, Paul, an apostle, he also became an apostle. And this fits in some ways. You know, he was this religious leader among the Jews. And now he becomes this person of great influence, this leader in the church. Now, he didn't become an apostle overnight. There was this process, and it was pretty long. He had a period of preparation. He had a period of examination. God was maturing him in the faith before he was sent out as an apostle. That's what apostle means. It just means sent one. Remember Matthew 28, Jesus has risen from the dead. He gathers all his disciples to him, minus Judas. And he gives them what we call the Great Commission. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, they were apostles. Now they're being sent to the ends of the earth. And eventually, that group, those disciples who became apostles, Paul is added to their number. 
And they all play this unique role in the history of the church that no Christian has ever played since. But Christians are, they might not be apostles, we are all apostolic. That there's a sent nature to all of our lives where we want to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, for his kingdom to come on earth, it means several things. I'm just going to list a few, but this isn't, this isn't a total list. Part of what it means for the kingdom to come, part of what it means for all of us to be apostolic is that we engage in what is called evangelism. That we want to proclaim the gospel that Jesus came, that he died, and he rose again. And then if we put our faith in him, we receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive this new life that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All of us are engaged in that, not just me, not just the Apostle Paul. So evangelism is part of what it means to be apostolic. What another way that it means to be apostolic, to be sent, is that we want to see all ethnicities become one in Christ in the church because the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. That we seek unity. That's what it means to be sent. For some of us, what it means to be sent is that we do it in our parenting. That we are loving our children, not just because they ended up in our home after a period of nine months. That we're being sent to them every day when we wake up. To love them with the gospel. It's apostolic. For others of us, it's in our vocational employments that we want to see human flourishing happen in all places in, in our culture, even in the sliver that you find yourself engaged in. I could go on and on, but brother and sister, you are more like Paul than you are unlike Paul. There is an apostolic element to your life. It might not have the drama that Paul's did. But make no mistake, you will be astonished as God uses you. You will see God's power flow through you to do things that you know you couldn't do on your own. And in that astonishment, you'll give praise to God for how he uses you. That you'll be patient with your kids when you didn't expect to. That you'll see unity happen in your job because you've got this Lens of the gospel with which you see things through. You will see people come to faith that you never thought would come to faith. All because God used you. And it's easy for us that we get on this train that when we see God doing things in our life, it fuels us and that's a good thing. But what happens when you start to struggle? What happens when things become hard? Well, you're going to need that next line. You see it there in verse 1. That you'll need that you have an apostolic nature element to your faith because it's the command of God that's what's going to have to be at the root it's not going to be the fruit of your ministry it's not going to be the fruit of the way God used you or you'll give up fast but you have to see it as the command of God Paul needed this Paul struggled 2 Corinthians 4 he says we were afflicted in every way but not crushed Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So Paul struggled. You struggle. I struggle. Join the club. Well, Timothy struggled too. Now Timothy struggled in different ways than Paul. So Timothy had a really tough life. He came from a mixed marriage. 
His father was a Gentile. His mother was a Jew. Might not sound like much to you, but in the Jewish synagogue, he was considered an illegitimate child, all because his father was a Gentile. So can you imagine the whispers that he heard growing up before he was converted? Can you imagine the glances he got on Saturdays when he showed up at the synagogue? And you know what this produced in him? He was a very shy person. He needed affirmation and he needed reassurance. And Paul had to tell him in 1 Timothy 1.7 not to be timid. 1 Corinthians 16.10, he tells the church of Corinth to put Timothy at ease. So he was shy. He was also young. 1 Timothy 4.12, if you've been around the church very much, you know this one. Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because of your age. Then he said that he's young in 2 Timothy 2.22. So not only is he shy, but he's also young and he's sickly. 1 Corinthians 5.23, we learn that Timothy is frequently sick. So what does, how does Paul engage with Timothy, this shy, young, sickly man? Well, he doesn't shame him. He doesn't shame him for his deficiencies. Instead, Paul comes alongside Timothy and he plays this fatherly role. And you see what Paul calls him. Do you see it there? He calls him his true child. Isn't that tender? From one grown man to a younger grown man. No biological connection here. True child. Had to be powerful, had to be healing for Timothy to hear these words. He was this social outcast. He was someone who had heard the whispers. He was someone who's deeply in touch with his faults. And Paul says, true child. See, Paul had played a role in his life. See, Timothy and Timothy's mother, Timothy's grandmother all came to faith in Lystra. Lystra we hear about in Acts 14 where Paul goes and he preaches the gospel. And Timothy and his mother and grandmother are converted. Timothy grows up, he matures, and he joins Paul's ministry team. Or he's mentored. And he has to be mentored for his specific discipleship. He's got to be mentored about how do I walk with Jesus if I'm shy? How do I walk with Jesus if I'm sickly? How do I walk with Jesus if I'm young? Well, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, we hear that Paul tells him once again, it's probably for the 400th time, be strengthened by grace. Strengthened by grace. So if Timothy's going to be a leader... He can't have these worldly leadership qualities. He doesn't have them. He's shy, young, and sick. So he's going to have to have another power. And it's the grace of Jesus. And that's what shines through him. And that's what makes him an effective gospel leader. So does that hit home for you? You hear all about this business of being sent, of having this apostolic nature to your faith. And all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I'm ready to do something. I want God to use me. And then you start putting over top the gospel this view of leadership that's totally devoid of weakness. Friends, it doesn't work in the gospel. Or maybe 
when you hear about this apostolic nature of your faith, that God wants to use you in your work, he wants to use you as a tool for evangelism, he wants to use you to, to knock down the wall of hostility between ethnicities, to use you in your parenting, you just disqualify yourself. Because in your view, your flaws are so magnified that there's no way that God could use you. Well, God comes to both of those kinds of people. Paul comes to both of those kinds of people here. The gospel comes to both of those kinds of people and corrects us. Because what we all need, whether you think you're cut out for this or whether you think you're not, it says what you really need is that you need to hear those two words, true child. True child. Now maybe you had a parent. Maybe you had a grandparent. I had a grandparent. Maybe you had a gospel mentor who spoke those kinds of words to you. Healing words. It's rich. Probably that person or those two or three people mean more to you than anybody in the world. But Maybe you've never had that kind of mentor in your life. And I have good news for you. Look at these verses. Verse 1. God is called our Savior. Paul doesn't say my Savior. He says our Savior. Verse 1 says our hope. Christ is our hope, not my hope, our hope. He's Timothy's hope. He's the church of Ephesus' hope. Then later on in verse 2, Paul says, has this cocktail of grace, mercy, and peace that flow to Timothy. Not from Paul. What's the source of the grace, mercy, and peace? It's from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So sure, Paul plays an important role in Timothy's life, but Paul's not the source of Timothy's salvation. Sure, God uses Paul, but Paul is dispensable. See, what Timothy really needs, what Paul really needs, what you really need, what I really need is for Jesus to be my Savior, Jesus to be my hope. I need Jesus to dump truckloads of grace, mercy, and peace on my sin-sick head. And that's good news. But it gets better. Jesus is eager to do so for me and for you. Eager. The book of Jeremiah. I was looking at it on Friday. First 29 chapters of the book of Jeremiah. God is describing a dark, dark season for his people. And God says less than glowing things about them. And I just start making a list starting in chapter 1. And here's what I came up with. Chapter 1, verse 16. I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil. He didn't say this about the culture. He didn't say this about all the neighboring nations. He said this to the Jews. Chapter 2, verse 13, my people have forsaken me. Chapter 3, verse 2, we have polluted the land. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. 4.14, how long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? 5.23, this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. Verse 6, verse 7, as a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. Ouch. I couldn't go anymore. 
I had to stop making the lists. But all those things, they were true of Israel back then and they're true for me and true for you. And so what do you expect God to do with me, you, and his people if all those things are true? Is he just going to wipe his hands clean of us, give up on us, turn out, walk the door? Is he going to drop the hammer right here? That's what you would expect. That's what I expect. But what happens in chapters 30 through 33 is that God comes and he consoles. He soothes his wayward people. You read those four chapters and it's just rich, especially after reading some of what you see in chapters 1 to 29. But one of the most moving lines in those four chapters is found in chapter 31, verse 20. And here's what it says. Listen closely. Is Ephraim, Ephraim is just another word for Israel. Is Israel my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. And I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Darling child, I remember him still. My heart yearns for him. And I will surely have mercy on him. That's unbelievable. These are the same people that he said were practicing vile whoredom. They were riding the struggle bus and bad. So if you're riding the struggle bus, like Paul, like Timothy, like the Israelites and Jeremiah, maybe you're riding the struggle bus because this fallen world has beaten you up. Maybe you're, drive, you're, driving, you're riding the struggle bus because of your own blunders. But here's what I know. There's a God who yearns to shower you with his grace, his mercy, and his peace. There's a God who wants to call you his true child. There's a God who calls you his darling child. And even when you've forgotten him, even if you've forgotten him during the pandemic, all you've been waiting for is a vaccine. Even if you've forgotten him because you've been hoping that some political regime would bring whatever your version of kingdom to God is to bear in our country. You're not seeing it. Even if you've forgotten God in the midst of all of that, he remembers you. He's not forgotten you. In fact, he sent his son to rescue you. Your loving father proves that he yearns for you by sending you his beloved son to live, to die, and to raise again just so that he might call you true child. And friends, may these be words that you not just hear, that you not just read, but that you feel and that you live out so that you might give glory to your father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to believe that you would call us <laughs> true child. You know, we, we, we know. Uh, we know how uh, far we've missed the mark. And so, Lord, I pray that we would 
walk in humility. And Lord, that we would receive from you your grace. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. In Christ's name, amen.